0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Life in college for architecture students is remarkably predictable, and for those of us who have been through it, as unique or different as you think your experience was, you eventually come to realize that even though the process varies widely from program to program, at their core, they are almost fundamentally the same in their format. Is this a bad thing? Are there changes that we should be discussing? Welcome to episode 137, Is Architecture School Broken? Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architecture building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Visit masteringmovement.net to learn more. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson.
1: And I'm Andrew Hawkins.
0: And today, Andrew and I are going to be tackling a topic that has been on our list of shows for almost three years. A long time. Yeah, a
1: long time.
0: A long time. If I was a betting man, I feel confident that if you got a handful of architects sitting around a table talking to one another, eventually the topic of architecture school and the classes we should have taken comes up. Shortly after Andrew joined the podcast back in November of 2018, we started talking about this topic as a potential show as early as November of 2018.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Immediately we've been talking about it.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think we're qualified to talk on this topic for a few reasons. Other than we both went to and graduated from architecture school, I keep half of a pinky toe in academia. As a member of the University of Texas School of Architecture Advisory Council, a position I've had since 2018, I should point out that I don't really do anything, but I go to the meetings a few times a year. Show up and go to the meetings, yeah. Yeah, I show up, I go to the meetings, and they give me updates right? Yeah, and developments and objectives and the general activities and goings on at the school, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Andrew is actually firmly entrenched in academia, and he lives it year-round. Yeah, yeah. For better or for worse, as they say.
1: But yeah, also, I've actually graduated through two architecture programs, so I've got at least two different- You think
0: you're better than me? Is that what No. That <laughs> yeah, I think I'm better. You think you're better than me? No. But I mean,
1: I've got at least the experience of two different programs.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot to get into on this topic.
1: Yeah, I might have gotten
2: overzealous. <laughs>
0: So since Andrew lives it, breathes it, smells it, all of it, I said, Andrew, you got to put together the run sheet for today to make sure that we have some narrative from start to finish. And we know what we're talking about. We have a trail of breadcrumbs so we can stay on task. But we're going to start the conversation about 150 years ago. right? Yeah. Cue the travel backwards music, right? Blah, blah, blah,
2: blah, blah, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, so let's call this the history of architectural education. Yeah. Over the past 150 years or so, the architectural education in the United States has gone through several distinct educational movements and styles. And I will confess that unless you're, I don't know, doing a podcast on this topic, (laughs) I'm not sure that knowing all of them is going to influence you in any kind of meaningful way other than knowing stuff about where we were could inform where we have already been. So learn from that and move forward. Yeah. Rather than just keep repeating things that we evolved out of a long time ago. Yeah. So 150 years ago, let's talk about mid 19th century. Yeah. Well, originally,
1: an architect and the way that architects were educated was an informal process. Before that, I could learn from someone who was an architect in an apprenticeship model, just like they were if it was a woodworker or a sculptor or Mm -hmm. We were lumped into that type of education model that is that idea of just learning from someone who knew what they were doing and who had done it before. And that is how that
0: was for a long time, right? Which, you know, honestly, back then, I sit there and I think. Which, yeah, I don't know how she would do it, right? That's how most people learned how to do things in the
1: 18, middle 1800s. I don't think there's any other way to do it, probably anywhere before that, up until the mid-19th century. And then at that point in time, there's academic institutions and schools that start to crop up, and then in 1857, the AIA was established, and so they started to push for some formalized education for architects. And so in the mid-19th century, that's when things
0: started to change in that regard. Which, again, makes sense because given the nature of what architects do, you want to start to put some sort of criteria for establishing whether or not somebody is capable or, yeah. you know, has the the ability or the talent or the knowledge to be trusted to do the things that we do, essentially.
1: And interestingly enough, along those same time is, I know this because I teach a professional practice course, is that building codes and things like that were starting to be developed at that same time. And they were starting to deal with regulations and city planning and rules about assemblies. Mm-hmm. And so there was all these rules starting to come up at that time about things becoming more structured, about things that we do as architects, and about things that we have to know and have to do. You know, the other big issue is the the next thing that happened was the
0: influence of the Beaux Arts style of education. Wait, wait, hold on. Before we get into that one, I don't think that we should, I don't think we did gloss over it, but. The idea that as building codes start to come on board and, and these criteria for evaluation to make sure that things are being done a certain way. Yeah, mm-hmm. The fact that that was happening and at the same time a formalization of academic institutions for the education of an architect start to come on board. It's not a coincidence. Yeah, It's not just you work under this person and they do a pretty good job. Now they're like, you need to know very specific things because we're going to start to evaluate your buildings in very specific ways. They want to make sure that they have a box to check that, yes, you have been recognized by some formal governing body to be capable to do what you are proclaiming or holding yourself out as capable of doing. It's kind of a big moment.
1: Yeah. 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 huh? And I'm not really sure about in that whole time period is if that was a societal move at the time, like was it happening for doctors and lawyers at that same time? I'm not familiar enough with that time period of history to know if that was a big societal change and that everything was happening across multiple professions. It seems like about the right time in history where elements like that become more formalized just across the board. Well, my,
0: I don't know, my, the pessimist in me says it's the the glow up of all these cottage <laughs> industries that essentially form some sort of regulatory control that brings sure, in sure. revenue. Yeah, that's for true. The sake of could be bringing in revenue. Like it's like there. I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, I'm sure that if I went and did some research, I could probably find some corollaries in almost any <laughs> yeah. governed profession that somewhere along the way you're going to have to pay your thirty pieces of silver. To be able to say that you're capable of doing the thing that in the previous 1700 years of mankind we were doing,
1: yeah, Yeah. nobody needed, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. All right, so
0: let's move on to late 19th century, early 20th century, where I cut you off. The Beaux Arts influence,
1: yeah. So the Ecole de Beaux Arts in France was a school. It was an art school, but they actually really considered the the originators or authors of the studio-based learning environment.
0: Yeah, that like almost everybody uses to this day. Yes, exactly.
1: In that instance, they were much more in the true Beaux-Arts style. They were focused on teaching people to follow and replicate the classic structures and the classic forms of the past. It was a very rigid education, but it was all in a studio-based environment. And so at the time, there was even a lot of famous American architects that went over there to learn in that environment and then came back to create some of the more classic architectural projects here in the States. People like McKim, Mead and white or Richard Morris hunt or other folks like that, they went over there to study and then came back and then created some of the more classical
0: projects that are still in existence today. So, Hey, can I throw in a little fun fact?
2: Yeah, go for it. Go
0: so those guys in this program one of the things that they advocated that I learned a long time ago, and I'm a hardcore believer in it, is that shadows are cast at 60 degrees from upper right to bottom left. 60 degrees. Yeah. And so like, like in my AutoCAD drawings, I used to try to bake in much of these, I don't know, classical architectural graphic principles that I can. And I used to always hate when people would indicate glass with three slashes you know like little lines one yeah, slash it's one x the next slash is like 1.5 x and then another 1x slash and i would go nope solid lines across and it would be a different pattern in every piece of glass and it was always 60 degrees from upper right to lower left mm-hmm. you know, there you go a little fun fact a little fun graphic fact for you okay that's <sighs> funny
1: but the thing is really in a way that is still mostly the basis for what we do mm-hmm. everything the way that architecture is taught currently is a modified version of learning that was introduced in the mid to late 1800s. Yep. But there are some things change, of course, the content possibly, but we still do this process of working and putting out work and having critiques and going through this whole process. It still works that way. I mean, we can talk about the different influences of Bauhaus and modernism and those kind of things, but... Really, all we've changed is the thought behind what we're doing, but we haven't really changed the methodology of what we're doing. You know, we're not doing a Beaux-Arts style of replicating classic work, but we're still definitely doing it in that studio format. That system still
0: exists. Well, okay. I bet everyone who has graduated from architecture school will say, yes, every design, like every class that they would consider a major class. We're not talking government 101 or 201. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. none of those. I'm not talking about those. None of those. Your main architecture studios, your classes, your design classes, the one that you were in for 500 hours a week. They were all the same. They were all big open rooms with lots of desks and lots of students. Yes. Yes. Now, those spaces still exist. and I don't want to get in front of us. Those spaces still exist and people have classes in them. People don't really work in them the same way that they used to back when I was in school and when you were in school, both times for you. (laughs) Yeah, nice jab. Okay, all right, let's keep going.
1: Anyway, so not much has changed other than the theories and the ideas that are being taught to include different styles and those sorts of things, but modernism, Bauhaus, you Bauhaus, deconstructivism, whatever, the content has changed, but the format hasn't really changed. So that was the reason in my thought process that it was important to look at this history of education and see where we came from and, and possibly where we got stuck or have settled into, maybe I should say.
0: One of the things that was a little different, that was kind of interesting, you know, when I think about the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, the only two programs that I'm aware of was that one and it was the Bauhaus, Bauhaus yeah. process and how they said, we're going to design how the curriculum is built. And what you study and what you focus on and how you go about that process and how do we look in these principles and how does that manifest itself in your work? Those were two singular moments that everything else was kind of a dot along the way. These were branches big. that went off in completely yeah, different big directions.
1: Big shifts, I guess yes. you would say.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thing is, is I I don't know, because this could be its own topic, quite honestly, but why one methodology of teaching became the way to do it and like why did the Bauhaus model not get adopted in a broad manner why didn't it go yeah. everywhere why was it not something everyone goes oh this is fantastic that's not this show but that one and that was mid 20th century you could look back on that work now and go that's some cool stuff you know and they had ceramics they had weaving and they had architecture and they had painting glass and had work and all,
1: yeah everything right
0: All of it. And they looked at it as like you're going to learn all of this stuff. You're not just going to go learn how to do a thing. So we're going to teach you a a training and a methodology and a process and a way of thinking. Maybe it's because
1: it was so involved. It involves so many different aspects that that's why it was hard to replicate across the world or to other places because not everybody either has the ability to include all that stuff or the desire.
0: Well, it had to do with having the right kind of teachers yeah. I think as well like in that moment those teachers existed in that capacity as opposed to they went through a process and they mm-hmm. turned into teachers that were those yeah, and I don't really know teachers. but I feel
1: like there's a part of me that feels like all those people that did that were close knit group and they were like hey I'm gonna start a school it was that sort of idea where they were all like of a like mind that's also something I think that's really hard to replicate so
0: yeah you know it's funny probably in this show we should put a link i I did write mm. an article on the Bauhaus and it there's a diagram that was like, here's how this school was structured from its curriculum. And if, if you see it, you would know what it is. It's round. It's like outside is half a year is basic courses. And then three years you go through oh, material uh-huh. study and you go through construction study and then you move further in. you start to look at things like clay and stone and wood and metal and color and glass and textiles. And, and then Right in the very middle of it, you have this building and engineering science, not just the artsy yeah. part comes into it. Yeah, We should, should put a link to it because it kind of explains a little bit about what that movement is for those of people who aren't up on the Bauhaus I curriculum. I would say I
1: think that most schools probably run some modified version of that idea where they want you to learn some of the things about materials and other stuff along the way, but probably not as intense as the Bauhaus model or even as explorative. Yeah. That's the Bauhaus model, maybe would be the thing. Or you kind of got your finger in 50 pies and you're doing all these things. But that still did have an influence on our current system for
0: sure. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, and I've looked through the run sheet and I know some of the things we're talking about, and I don't know enough to really get into into this, but I ended up talking to, I don't want to call the guy out, so I'm not going to, but a dean of an architecture program in the United States. Pretty big one. Fairly well thought of. And he was explaining to me how the university requires them to justify and pay for the classes that they teach. So it has to do with the number of students that take that class. Each student has like a dollar amount associated with them in terms of revenue. And if you can't generate the interest by the student body to take the class, you can't afford to do the class because they can't pay to have it exist. And so he was talking about how they wanted to, it's almost like a pay to play to a certain extent. You have to justify from a revenue standpoint what you teach is what people want as opposed to what they need. And it was a much bigger conversation and I'm sure. dumbing it down, but it was the first time since I was never on that side of the table, like the side of the table you're on my experience with architecture schools as a student. And then as a part of the advisory council where I get kind of here's the update. He was really talking about like, this is how architecture school function. Like if you lift the yeah. the tablecloth up and look under the table, yeah, this that's is kind of across the
1: board. Everything is now. Higher education is a business, which is something maybe comes up a little bit later too. But yeah, it's all about the business and making money. So the last thing that I was going to mention here that is of interest, I think, is the Architectural Boy Report that happened in the late 90s, 1996, which was called Building Community, a New Future for Architecture, Education and Practice. And this was a, a guy who wrote this report, was hired, actually, he was hired by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching to evaluate the current state of architecture education. And at that point in time, he recommended these seven things that needed to change because the system was bad and it was outdated. The reason I bring that up is because in 1996, way before our conversation in 2018, people are realizing, and that's, I mean, what is that, almost 30 years ago now? God, anyway, that things needed to change. The, The system wasn't working the way that it should. And that even now today, I think there's plenty of those things that the educational system is still working 30 years later to try to implement or respond to some of those seven or eight criteria that he barked out as this is how things need
0: to change. So let me ask you this, as, as someone who's in the system, does the Boyer Report ever come up in your roundtable discussions? Yeah. You know, Sometimes, not very or... often anymore, but early on and When we start talking
1: about trying to rework the pedagogy of things, it comes up. But it's not something that's constantly there. It gets mentioned every so often, but it's not a big looming thing that happens. But I honestly had no idea about it until I started teaching. That's the only way I found out about it was when I started teaching. Somebody's like, oh yeah, and there it shows up in here and there. And you're like, oh, okay.
0: More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Tyler Jacob specification sales manager for drift ready and CS prefabricated solutions. He's been in the commercial building industry since 2016 and has always focused on life safety, structural resilience and improved construction methods. He is passionate about modular construction methods and making buildings better through innovation. Tyler holds a bachelor of science in mechanical engineering from University of Nevada in Reno. Hi Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, Bob and Andrew. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Where are you? Where are you at right now?
3: I'm in the home state of my alma mater. I'm in Reno, Nevada.
0: Oh, all right.
1: Nice. How's the weather in Reno today?
0: Yeah.
3: Sunny and spring-like. It's uh, back in the 70s after one of the most epic winters of all time. Oh,
0: wow. Wow. Is that even a thing in Reno? Winters?
3: Oh, yeah. I'm right at the base of the Sierras here, just over the hill from Wiktar. So we had uh, over 700 inches of aggregate snowfall this year, so the skiing was great. (laughs)
0: Wow. All wow. Right. Well, there you go. Shows how much I know about Reno.
3: <laughs> that does sound epic.
0: All right, let's jump right into multi-level building projects and the safety challenges that construction managers attend to when buildings start going vertical, and it comes to temporary stairs and ladders.
3: So what we deal with and what we provide is a modular stair system that is stackable, modularized, and prefabricated. And what the use of that product does Our system is faster, easier, safer than traditional methods. So we eliminate the need for rental or temporary stairs, which is a cost savings. And we also eliminate the need for ladders or temporary fixtures for workers to move different levels throughout the project. So our system is what we like to call faster, easier, and safer.
0: Well, that's catchy.
3: (laughs) It's got to be better than those hammered up two by fours to make a ladder, right? That's correct. I've climbed on a few of those myself. And <laughs> yeah, they're, me too. They're, uh, they're a little bit scary, even for somebody that's not really scared of heights.
0: So let me ask you this question. I'm looking for a safer, better, faster, cheaper stair. Mm-hmm. So what is that process of when I decide I want it? To, how do I get it?
3: Excellent question again. We try to be involved as early as possible, which is a little unorthodox for a vendor. But we encourage architects, general contractors, structural engineers to involve us as early as the design development phase, not to say that we can't be involved later in the process, even sometimes as late as 100% construction documents. But we are occupying a stair shaft with a modular product. So as opposed to something that would normally be field measured, brought it in pieces, requiring dangerous or complex lifts where a stair would be lifted with a chain hoist over somebody that's in there getting ready to weld it in place, we provide a solution that can be installed on the ground level ahead of the building or down into an existing share shaft that's already poured or a CMU shaft. So earlier the better, but we can integrate later on in the process. That's pretty
1: interesting. So what's the services you guys provide in that process?
3: Say I come to you and I have
1: an idea about that. What are the services that you're using to help me figure all that out?
3: So as an architect coming to us looking to specify us on a project or a general contractor looking to purchase the product outright and integrate it into a project, we provide you an engineered service. So from the get-go, we do a feasibility study to ensure that we can make the stairs fit and how we're going to connect back to structure, how that impacts engineering and architectural element. From the time that we all agree that this product is going to work in the project, And we move on to producing engineered shop drawings, support submittal. And then once those submittals are approved or if they come back noted, we make changes, we get the approvals together, and then we go to manufacturing and delivery. And we provide these either in a flat packed configuration or they come already assembled, ready to be set in place directly off the truck. I would add that a traditional stair, you might be installing, let's say, like on a previous project, we installed six floors in a day. That's a single day activity. You may be taking 12 days to do that with traditional methods. The idea is that we're vastly faster than something that would be done traditionally. So about an hour and a half per unit to install these stairs. So from going ground level to floor number two, that's an hour and a half worth of work for a crew of four. That's
0: impressive. Wow. So this system, if we put a bow on this, this is a product that allows contractors to build a secure stair system earlier in the construction process. It makes the site safer for workers, it reduces man hours, and provides safety access for emergency personnel. It sounds like you're checking all the boxes.
3: (laughs) That's correct. We try to make this easy for everybody, and we're trying to change the way stairs are done and modernize the way we do construction.
1: Sounds great. Thanks for joining us today, Tyler. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us about these prefab
0: stair units. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks. Construction Specialties is so focused on the importance of Mastering Movement that they have created a CEU specifically on Mastering Movement on the job site with modular stairs. Each course is worth one AIA LU HSW and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy provided by CS. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. Well, let's transition into concerns and criticisms of the current system. Yeah. And we've got a bunch of notes that are assembled here. We're going to look at some concerns and criticisms of the current system to kind of follow up now that we've just introduced the Boyer report. If you remember the AIA, actually, you can get access to that report. Mm -hmm. I imagine we'll put a link to the show in it. But so as we get into concerns and criticisms of what is predominantly accepted as the current system. It's important to note that these criticisms aren't universal. You know, there's different architectural programs that exist that go to great lengths to address these concerns to varying degrees. Many architecture schools are actively working to address the issues by revising their curricula, promoting diversity, focus on sustainability, and different types of practical skills. But many of them are also stuck in the traditional methodologies of teaching and remain steadfast and clinging to these older ideologies or these ideas that have been rooted or steeped in tradition mm-hmm. as it were because that's something that we hear about a lot yeah And their process so while they may institute new technologies to create work the basis is still rooted in these historical models of architectural education and we're just kind of i don't know Putting a little a little salt and pepper on something that's already been existing and, and start, like we're dressing it up, but it's still at its yeah. core, it's still kind of the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, and I'm not trying to be bad about it, but it's like the lipstick on a pig kind of thing in, yeah. in the essence. Not that it's that bad, but the idea that I mean, I think it happens in the profession too, where they're like, "Well, you got to pay your dues, you got to do this because that's how I did it." and da da Yes. For some reason, I feel like we as architects are very. I don't know, attached to or ingrained in that whole idea of, well, if that's how I did it, that's how you should do it. And we're just going to keep propagating the same thing yes, over and over and over, whatever it may be. And so in this list, it's like 11 things about common issues. And I don't know that I've got these in, in order of importance. They're just random, I think. The biggest one, I think that you, as someone who probably has been hiring or dealing with more recent graduates than I in the past several years. Is this lack of practical experience that you get out of architecture school you don't really get much experience in the
0: actual profession itself so here's the thing that's interesting about that because i have I have vacillated on my opinion about the value of practical experience in recent grads from time to time yeah, yeah, and part of it goes from i don't know. There was a line. I'm sure I've said it on this show before. I know I've written it before, but and my dad used to drill it into me all the time. I was always like, yeah, yeah. But now it's part of my own kind of... I've adopted this to a point to where I... Because I believe it. He used to say, you go to school to learn how to think. <laughs> you go to school to learn how to solve problems that don't exist yet. You go to a trade school to learn how to do a thing. Like, you want to fix cars you want to fix air conditioners you want to like you go to a school and they teach you how to do that the type of programs we're talking about they're trying to teach you how to think so i remember even when i was in school Mm -hmm. that we used to look at other programs even within the state of texas and i don't know if this is because we had an attitude about it we used to look at and say okay we're design oriented program and our people come out they're all smart they're all capable We're giving them the tools to think about things that haven't been thought of yet. Are we completely versed in how to do code research? No, we do not do any of that stuff. They're like, Matt, that's why we have that intern program as part of your licensing process. The companies will teach you how to actually do that sort of stuff. We're here to teach you how to think. But then there were other schools in the state, like those people came out day one they were better students day one because they're like, we're going to teach you how to get water out of your wall assembly. Mm-hmm. That's something that they did. It was very practical. It was much more, this is how you do it. And we used to all say, well, that's not us because eventually we'll learn it. And guess what? I did eventually learn it. But they're like, we're not burning up classroom time to teach you how to keep water out of a building. Sure. And, I, and I've kind of, eh, I mean, maybe a little bit more than what I got would have been a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: I think that's the deal. Again, to me, this is one of those things where you can overdo it in both directions. Yeah. And I think that's the, the issue really is, is it's not that you need to come out and you should know all the codes by heart and like have all the software mastered or whatever, any of those kinds of things. But at the same time, if you don't have that stuff, I think what happens, the reason I think this becomes quite possibly one of the top complaints is that there's such a difference of what I'm learning in school versus what I do in the profession. Yes that's drastic. But the other part of it though, is I think that's a difference between now and when you and I got out of school is that even now the pace of the profession is like 10 times, 20 times faster than it was when we were out of school when we first graduated. But also, and we hear it from our, at least I think that we do, that we hear it some from our advisory committees or from people that come in and do career fairs and stuff that the students need to have some additional practical knowledge more than what they have because every employer wants their graduates to be workforce ready. That's the term that we hear a lot it's workforce ready. And so I think it's the definition of what does that really mean? Because yes, at the same time, we're not a technical school where we're just teaching them how to draft and do that stuff. Cause they've got to be able to think and solve problems. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, they can't, which is another sort of thing that we're going to do later. It can't be all theoretical. Right. Pie in the sky stuff sure. for their entire architectural education because then none of that applies to you.
0: Well, okay, so let's use like a very real world. Here's one singular example that can position you on one side of the table or another. I always say when I'm looking for candidates, when I'm interviewing people, I'm looking for smart, clever, intelligent people. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. If you don't know Revit, if you're a smart, clever, intelligent person, you'll pick it up pretty quick. We have the ability to get you where you need to be. And I would, I would not make the decision to hire somebody or not hire somebody right out of school because of how good they know Revit. That would not be a criteria that would hold me back. If you're five years out of school now and you don't know Revit, yeah, that's going to figure into the mix a little bit because that's part of what I need you to do with five years experience.
1: Yeah. I think that's interesting.
0: That's not to say I, I wouldn't love it. That's not to say I wouldn't appreciate it. But because what we're also learning now is. I'm
1: not sure that's universal, though. I'm not sure that's a universal stance.
0: No, it's definitely not. That
1: would be my point. Yeah, no,
0: it's definitely not. Yeah. But even you told me that a lot of the software that that the companies want, the workforce ready demands, they're like, I want them to know Revit. I want them to know Rhino. I want them to know SketchUp. I want them to know fill in the blank. Yeah. There's not actually classes that teach those kids how to use those softwares. Here, this is a Revit 101 class for the most part. They're like, go on YouTube, watch videos. Mm Ask your classmates how they're doing something. Like, it's interesting that somebody would say, This is an expectation that we want workforce ready people. And part of that's knowledge, part of that's knowing how to use the tools that we use every single day. Yeah. Yet, even though that message is being delivered, it's not manifesting itself in such a literal manner like, we're going to teach you how to do this software. Most of the people I know, they do it, but they didn't take a class in it. Or if they did, it wasn't a dedicated class to it. So I find it kind of interesting. So that's part of the reason I have the position I have.
1: No, I don't know, which is interesting because even when I was in school, there was dedicated classes for that. And there doesn't seem to be anymore. I don't know why that is, but I took an AutoCAD class from the engineering department. I took a class. All they did was teach us AutoCAD for a semester. And we also offered, at that time, it was like Mm microstation, I think, or something like that. There was a course in that that taught you how to use those tools. And that was all it was. Those were the replacement for hand drafting classes. And I took hand drafting classes. There was a course where I just drafted construction documents and learned how to letter and do all that kind of stuff. And so there was a technical aspect to it that was part of the curriculum and not just, like you say, me going on YouTube and learning how to do that stuff myself.
0: Well, I couldn't do that because YouTube didn't exist when I was well, in school, number duh, one. Me neither. But but here's the thing. I never took a drafting class in yeah. college, not once. And I didn't take a computer drafting class. Yeah, And I remember, so the first software that I, I learned was Datacad. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in it for very long. And the way that I was taught Datacad was they go, here, we installed Datacad on your computer. Here's a piece of notebook paper that has 20 commands on it. Yeah. We'll check in on you later. It, like yeah. that was it. Now, software is a little bit more complicated. Now you really just had to do like line and offset and radius and dimension. Yeah. I mean, it's like it was not as complicated. It doesn't sure. do as much. It's not as intelligent. But even then, all the software that I learned never took a class on it, mm. even as a professional. Mm-hmm. They're like, here's your three ring binder of how to do stuff. Or here's your book. Read it. Yeah, Come in an office Monday and let's go. So. Yeah. All right. Different experiences there. But
1: my opinion of that is, I mean, I think it's a somewhat valid criticism, but I also think it's a very slippery slope. There's a fine line in that amount of practical experience or knowledge that's too much that makes people have a, in my mind, a ceiling to where they can go Mm -hmm. right? versus having to spend too much time in their early career trying to make up for things that they didn't learn because everything they learned was so theoretical. You've mentioned it many times. You talk about, what was it, your third or fourth job where you decided, I got to get a job where I learn how to keep water out of a building because all this stuff I'm doing up until now, I haven't. Right. Yeah. Right. To me, the balance is somewhere in between those things,
0: right? Sure. And I think it's just a hard mark to hit sometimes.
1: And I think it's also one that constantly changes.
0: Well, okay. So let me pivot this title. So the disconnect from real world practice. We've taken that a certain direction. Yeah. When I saw that as like, here's a topic, part of it, I was like, Oh, we're going to talk about how professors don't actually have any real world practice experience. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. We've got educators that are educating us that have never worked in the industry. They've just become professional teachers. Mm-hmm. Now that works. It's a great thing if you're going, Hey, we're teaching you how to think. We're teaching you how to like imagine and tie knots in the sky with your brain. You know, like, yeah, those are the things that's great. But if we're talking about, Hey, I want. Workforce ready people being taught by people who have kind of never really been in the workforce. I kind of think that's a bit of a problem too. Yeah, could be, right? Could be.
1: To me, all these things, there's a balance that has to happen. And I just, it's not easy. And for that kind of stuff, some schools are like, well, we don't care. We're going to throw out some of the big schools, Harvard and Columbia and all that kind of stuff. That work is really theoretical. And I think that in reality, what we're jumping around here, academia really puts a big emphasis on. The theoretical work more so than the pragmatic and practical work, because it seems more exciting, and of course there's research dollars associated with it and all that kind of stuff that happens
0: yeah, but here's what's interesting about that, and this is yeah. why I kind of still fall in that camp. It's the same reason why we do hot dog finger questions if I'm doing these like really far out. how do I build a multifamily complex on the dark side of the moon? Sure, you don't have a pre baked idea of how to solve that problem, yeah, so a lot of the problems and the projects that people address. They don't have real programs because they're like, we don't really want to talk about how you're laying out your bathrooms. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach you how to think. We're trying to teach you how to prioritize and evaluate and arrange and assemble and all these kind of things in a way other than will my Xerox machine fit in this corner of the copy room where they put the door. Like, I get that. I get that, though. But I think,
1: again, you're going to the the complete extreme of too practical. I think there's some... There's some middle ground in there somewhere that that's the sweet spot, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Okay. But I remember being in one of your studios and you gave everyone the option to design like an architect's office or some other thing. Yeah. And they all designed buildings where it was like 14,000 square feet per person. Sure. And they're like, here's the yoga room and here's the. That was like (laughs) first year. That was first year studio or second year,
1: right? Early on. Where, yes, that that kind of...
0: And I'm not making fun of them for doing that.
1: is good. Yes, but, but
0: you're it, like, you know what? We're not... That's kind of supports my point. You didn't tell them what the program had to be. You're just like, hey, y'all, do what you think is right. Sure. And then what you got was like, wow. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> this is a giant pyramid and there's like reflection space. and Yeah. Like... For every one square foot of working space, there was 50,000 square feet of like coffee shop and, I know. and yeah, bring I your know. dog to workspace. So it was interesting, but that's just it. Did. You didn't limit how they could go about solving that problem by giving them a criteria or a limit on square footage.
1: But that's because of the stage that they were in, in their no. architectural understanding.
0: No. But at some point,
1: they have to deal with some of those things. I don't think I could, I wouldn't feel right doing that in the fourth year or fifth year or graduate school. And letting them go bananas because they're not going to be able to do that in the real world. There's so many regulations and constrictions and all these things. And so at times I fall in the camp of you can't work without limitations. You can't work without restrictions. You have to have some restrictions in order for it to be realistic. And actually, to your point of solving problems, I have to be able to solve problems with limitations in place because that's really what we do as architects. Sure. Because whether that limitation is budget, it's client, it's location, it's code, it's whatever, we have limitations that we have to address and work with. There's a certain amount of structure and rigidity in what we have to deal with regardless. And part of me, my saying I always put is you have to know all the rules in order to start to break them. Sure, You can't just willy-nilly start breaking rules
0: because you don't know what you're doing. Well, look, let's yeah, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. We'll put all the ones, even if we don't talk about them. Yeah, yeah, sure. They sure. can all end up in the post. But there's a couple yeah, yeah. here that I'm gonna cherry pick because I go, yeah, no, that's go point. for it. I'll go for it. So we've kind of touched on a little bit, but just to dive in on the overemphasis of design studio, yeah. Which even to this day, even in this show, even I made when a you comment about. Yes, yes, I was like, oh, the government that didn't count. What counted was this, and it yeah. was studio, and it was. Yeah. We talk about it. And We'd say like, oh, what grade did you get. We don't care about those other grades. It's like, you just have to do that, Mm -hmm. right? So, whatever. We just care about what grade you get in studio. That was it. Yeah. And when, you know, I got a daughter now who's a sophomore in college and she's on a kind of a medical path. And so she's got all kinds of labs and stuff. And she's talking about all these hours. And I was like, I had a five hour class, class time, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I had a drawing class that was tuesday thursday that was 4 hours during that and i had i go i was in the classroom like 35 hours a week class time mhm and i got 16 hours credit for it normally if i'm talking to my business school buddies they're like i'm taking 15 hours that's cuz they had 5 3 hour courses that's mm-hmm. that's what they did yeah and i go i did 5 hours on monday <laughs> you know you're like that's your week yeah So it's different. So the idea that there is an overemphasis on Design Studio, it's real. It's real. And even in the opener, I made a comment about how do we break up the curriculum in such a way, which is another thing on here, outdated curriculum, is like, what classes should these people be taking? Are we spending so much time in the type of like, we all know that for Every one hour of non-studio time, you're going to put in like 10, 12, 15 hours worth of studio time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it limits maybe your bandwidth to go take class somewhere else. Like I took that ceramics class. I've mentioned it before. I loved it. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And it was just like unfettered creativity. Of course, I was a fifth year senior taking it with like freshmen. And they're all like, I got to make three pinch pot. I'm like, I'm on pinch pot number 500, you know, by this time. Yeah. It was completely, it was just a completely different process for me. Yeah, I definitely got some value for it, but I go, I should have taken some business classes, or you know, maybe an accounting class, or maybe a real estate class, something to supplement an understanding of what I do and how it fits into a bigger picture.
1: Yeah, and my comment on this is really maybe a commentary about this whole process. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I teach design studios all the time. That's what I do. If it weren't for those, I might not be employed. But they end up being so much of your time. That even the other electives that are architecture courses that you take don't get the same level of emphasis or appreciation, even from a student. Because just like you said earlier, we're all like, well, studio is the only thing that matters. Studio is the only thing that matters. Well, A, we can't teach you everything that you need to know in studio. That's not what it's about. But B, those other classes matter and actually do have an impact on your ability to be an architect. Yeah. But we're so focused on studio, studio, studio. And in reality, if you think about it in the profession, that's what design stuff, very small percentage, maybe 20%, 25% of what the whole process is about. Yeah. And I'm not saying we should do away with design studios at all, because I do think that they're really important and they have value. But is it that that has to happen every semester? Should there be one every semester or should there be semesters where we learn other whether they're theoretical, whether they're technological, whether they're, I don't know, social, whatever those things may be. So we have time to focus on those things to improve our ability. But the problem with it, I think is right, is that so much about design is this iteration and we don't get to do that either. We don't do it every semester. So there's this, there's a contradiction there, but we do focus so much time on something that's a very small part of the
0: actual job of being an architect. Yeah. I always know that when I really felt like I was starting to get a grip on what it meant to be an architect and someone who, I don't know, not to my own horn, but I think I'm a pretty good designer, was when I started to think about how I had things built or the way that I detailed things, the construction of those things impacted the design of those things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I became a profoundly different designer once that light bulb went off in my head. And the truth is, when I look at all the people now whose work that I admire, even if if I make it fairly the most jewelry box kind of situation, like it's, which is a lot of the residential work that people really kind of get jazzed over, mm-hmm. that is all about the detailing. Yeah. You know what makes that so cool is how they actually got it done. Not it's a box with a piece of glass on the end. Like that's not what makes it cool. It's like yeah, like it's a knife edge, and there's like where's the sill, and where's the straw. Like the way that they were clever in, in detailing those is what makes them special. Yeah. I don't know many people, and when I think about all the portfolios I look at, most of them don't include any kind of technical drawings at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that guy that's at the top of the mountain going, that's a big foul. I would like to see some of it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is I'd like to see it in the context of the project, not just here's a bunch of technical drawings. Yeah. you know, And when I do see them, they're kind of silly, right? Because they're just kind of like, it's like a tack on a little rider to something that was much bigger in the scope of mm-hmm. what people were spending their time on. Yeah. You know, UT had a sound building semester and you had to design it and you had to detail it. Yeah. And funny thing is, they didn't really tell us how to detail it. I remember I went to graphic standards to <laughs> figure out how to do window details. Yeah. And they looked awesome. Didn't understand how they worked really. Yeah. I don't think I drew any flashing in. Not with, I mean, if I had it, it there wasn't a comprehension behind it. It was just a graphic. There was a
1: line there that said flashing, but there was a line there in the. In graphic standards, yeah. In the element that I looked at, yeah. Yeah. And that still happens some today. But again, I think you're right. And I agree with you that really part of being able to be a good architect is understanding the way things get built and understanding those assemblies and layers of stuff which most of the time in design studios, you don't ever get to that. Most of design studio work is really big picture, big thinking. You might get into some things, but most of it's, I think, the big idea, the big idea. And you don't really get to the point of understanding about, man, if I could shift these materials and make them work and really have this super fine, well-thought-out condition because I know how the materials work and how they behave and how I can shift certain things and get them all to assemble, which again, like you say, becomes what makes really great, great architecture. Mm-hmm. There's also the big level idea of it, but there's also that really finite intricacies of it that really also are a requirement for it to be just superb, yeah, joyous architecture.
0: I can tell you, so since I've moved to a bigger firm, I did this in smaller firms too, but to a far lesser extent, because in smaller firms, frequently the guy who designed it Also draws it and probably does CA on it. I did all yeah for since I don't know the last twenty five years. I had either the major role in designing it or a major role in designing it, Mm -hmm. and I drew it most of the time. And even as I got to the end of the twenty five year window, I drew less and less of it. But there was an understanding of what you're trying to do as you were designing it, as you were detailing it. So now that I've gone to a bigger firm, everyone kind of has like silos. Like it was the first time I'd been in a place where people. They were vocal about, I'm not a designer. They say it with pride. Yeah. Which I'm all in on that. I go, great. But the problem I have with that as an idea is I go, you're detailing the project. You're the person that's going to make a good project be great. You can't not think about the design of it. Because if you just slap your bit together and your only concern is water tightness, We're losing.
1: We're missing something there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We're missing something. So, so it kind of goes both ways. I got people that go like, I design, they don't really understand how buildings go together. And we've started this process to now we're like, you're going to design it. You're going to start moving along the journey of these buildings in our office. So there is no longer, I work up to a certain point and I pass it off to somebody who wears a different hat. Yeah. We have this, we're trying to build capital A architects, but the idea that people go, I'm not a designer. And they just kind of put their hands up, and I go, well, you are, and you need to be, because you're the person that's going to make the difference in this project being okay and something special. Yeah,
1: or the flip side of a, I'm only a designer, I don't need to know how it goes together.
0: I don't like that either.
1: Both of those are right, wrong to me, yeah.
0: Well, you know, that manifests itself when somebody designs something and the client goes, I love it. And you go, uh, because of where you put this room that has the access to the roof, you now have to have a guardrail. Because you're within 35 feet of the edge and you didn't show them that there's a handrail that's going to have to exist that you're going to see. You drew it like it's this perfect sublime, like there's nothing there. And I go, Mm -hmm. that's not what it's going to look like. It's fake advertising. (laughs) You know, you drew that, that what makes that, that cantilever is 800 feet long. You're not doing that. Not on this budget. Yeah,
1: that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then you got up and go, well, we value, we had to, you know, try to get the project into budget. So we pulled this into six feet and they're like, well, what? It was 20 feet before, yeah. and you're like, it was 48 before, and now it's six. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. that's why I loved it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we do talk about designers. You need to know how all this stuff works. So you don't design stuff that you can't do to a certain extent. We don't want to like limit their like what if. Yeah. But I also want the people detailing it to not throw their hands up and go, bah, I'm just a detailer. So, yeah. All right. Again, this could be like a five part episode for sure. Apparently, because we're already deep into it here. But we're deep into it. So I'm going to tackle one more for this section. Okay. Kind of bring it up because I think it's it's worth. And if we go hour and a half, it's probably worth getting into it. So one of the things that I want to touch on is the high cost.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Because that's something, I mean, there's other ones that are interesting on here, but I still remember reading an article years and years ago, and it identified that getting a degree in architecture was the most expensive degree that you can get in a typical D1 college program. Hmm. Interesting. It was really based on the fact that most of them require you to either do a four, two or a five, whereas other degrees do not require, like you're just in school longer. It's not, oh, you're buying more expensive books because people getting degrees in math, their books are way more expensive than ours because they're only selling five of them. And yeah. have you seen the kind of special characters they have to use in math books? It's crazy. So and it really has to do with time and in architectural education. It's a long degree. It takes a lot of time to get through the system mm-hmm. assuming that your objective is to come out with the ability to get licensed, right? So,
1: yeah, I don't think you should downplay the uh, the extra costs of materials and printing and building models and all, cuz mm-hmm. over time that still compounds. We talked about it before, I think, you know, that that's could be an additional hundreds of dollars pretty easily, pretty quick a semester for every semester that you're in school, which then when you're in there, a five year or a four plus two, it just adds up, right? yeah, even more.
0: Well, it's different now too because now there's 3D printing. The type of plotting that people do, yeah. I'm not good old days syndrome guy, but we bought sheets of vellum, which was not particularly expensive, yeah. You know, and I had to buy a box of pencils or lead. You know, and I went to a lead yeah. holder. I could reuse it. Yeah, My big cost when I was in school was buying model materials, and rarely did they force us to say, you have to build a basswood model. Yeah. Normally, they didn't tell us we had to do anything, so I would say 95 out of 100 models that I built were built using chipboard, which at the time was like 39 cents for a 24 by, I don't know, 36 inch sheet of chipboard. Mm Mm-hmm. You could buy a bigger one, and it'd go up to like 79 cents a sheet. Yeah. But it's not like it is now. Now you read about these kids spending like literally thousands of dollars on their final project of the semester when they're building models and doing 20 color printouts on the wall and it's a big deal. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Yeah. It can get really expensive.
1: And, you know, we're maybe trying to move away from that in some instances. We've talked about a foray right, to digital presentations, but they just don't have the same ability to be utilized in the same way. But I think cost is is a barrier for a lot of people and something that could possibly use some modifications.
0: Well, I wonder, you know, if we talked about there being a disconnect from real world practice, do you know how often we print stuff out and pin it to the wall when we're presenting to clients? Probably never. Almost never. Almost never. Yeah. We have big screens and we have someone, we, we, we have a phrase, we're like, okay, who's going to drive? Because somebody's got the mouse and the keyboard and they're like spinning around the model and Mm -hmm. they're pulling up the stuff. And we put together either InDesign or PowerPoint. We put the images in there. We got the data. I mean, rarely do we put stuff on the wall in that capacity. Sure. I mean, we still do it on occasion, but it's not like that's not the norm. Yeah. So it seems like that should migrate its way into architecture school at some point. Possibly.
1: I still say it's hard to teach that way, though. It's easy to present that way. It's hard to teach that way, hard to critique and learn or transmit knowledge that way.
0: Because you want it all up on the wall at one time so you can go, look, when you look at this and you're circling something, then you walk five steps to the and then point to something else like in real time as opposed to, hey, can you flip back a couple pages on the screen? Yeah. I mean, I get that. I get that. Yeah, it's it's hard to do, but yeah. Okay, let's go to the next big section. And it is criticisms of the studio-based learning method. And these are probably the ones that, if there's any architects out there that PTSD, they probably could (laughs) come up with the same items that are on our list. Like, we could probably just do a poll. If we did, like, the poll of 100 architects, like Family Feud, top six answers on the board. Yeah, on the board. We would all get them. There'd be no Xs. No strikes. (laughs) So. Yeah. So, like, let's start with number one: long hours and stress. Still a thing. Still a thing.
2: Yeah.
1: But I don't know. I, it's interesting. I think sometimes I question how consistent that is in the current sort of studio. I think it's very cyclical. I think it happens when there's a deadline and stuff. But then sometimes, and it's just maybe my perception, is that they're kind of they lagging along right until there's something due, and then there's a lot of long hours and stress. And then when that deadline is passed, and they sort of not, it's not as intense. It's much more sporadic, which to me is somewhat like the profession in a way, that it's not consistent. I mean, I don't try to make my studios where it's consistently like, oh, 900 miles an hour from day one to day 48 or 50 or 90 or whatever it is. Right. It's sort of cyclical, but I do still think that there are tendency to have long hours and it could be stress. It just depends on who you are and how you deal with it. But I think sometimes that's, that stress comes from the competitiveness.
0: It does come but. from the competitive, which I don't always think is necessarily a bad thing because yeah. most of the time what moves you and your development along is not so much the teaching. It's seeing what everyone else is doing and going, I'm not doing what I need to be doing. That was a big part of it. Yeah, And I know that I spent a lot of time in studio and I rarely, rarely did old all-nighters. I mean, I learned pretty early on that whatever I did after about 11 o'clock at night was terrible. So I didn't necessarily leave. I just didn't do anything. I knew I wasn't going to do anything meaningful past a certain time in the evening. It just wasn't my thing. And so I was never that person. But since we had classes literally every day of the week in the studio and nobody was working on laptops, nobody was working in their den or their apartment or whatever the case may be. So you were just there already. So you just stayed a couple more hours. That's just kind of how that process worked. So I have fond memories, actually. I don't have any traumatic, terrible memories of it. And I don't know if it's just, oh, you forgot all the bad stuff and you only remember the good stuff. I don't know if that's true, but I know that fundamentally studio, the studio experience is different now than it used to be. Sure, sure. And I think part of it's because everybody was up there. So it's kind of like a party. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's music blasting and like. 10% 10% of your effort was coming up with the idea and 90% of the time was actually drawing it or building the model. It wasn't – I'm not over there cracking code for 60 hours a week. I'm like, listen to headphones, build chipboard models. It wasn't a killer. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's look at things like – I don't know. Focus on design to the exclusion of other skills. We've kind of already touched on this a little bit so we can get this one pretty quick, but yeah. it's the that's what mattered. There's the idea that if something's going to give, well, it's going to be something else in the design studio. I mean, that was what that process was. And I don't know, maybe there should be a little bit more diversity in the curriculum other than burning up X number of hours in terms of a capacity in design classes.
1: And I think the thing there really is also this notion that, And we've talked about it before, especially now, even more so even when you and I were in school, there's so many different positions or roles within the profession of architecture that aren't necessarily focused on design.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But that the school, the education system only focuses on that aspect so strongly that sometimes people, and I've said it before, people that would be good project managers or you know are really interested in, I don't know, sustainability or whatever, I mean, they may get Cs and Ds or something in their classes, but that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be good in the profession. Yeah, it just means because we're focused on well, design is the only thing that matters that they get bad grades and maybe discouraged from
0: going into the profession or continuing on with the degree. Yeah, yeah, I think that's rough. It is rough. We had a moment. You had to pass a portfolio review, and that was stressful. Mm-hmm. And before you went on to advanced level studios, yeah, upper levels, yeah. And part of that, it was studio based work was being evaluated and they'd looked at your ability to communicate graphically. They looked at your, how you were solving your problems. They looked at how you were telling a narrative because you're not there. You're not there to advocate on behalf of your work. To talk about it. Yeah. Right. So the things they evaluate, there's no flashing conversation or drawings or like none of that was happening. Yeah. So if you're that person that's like, "Uh, well, I'm just not a designer, but I love what this is as a project architect or a project manager or someone who's like really interested in the execution and construction administration, there's not bandwidth for those people. I sit there and I go, that's why we need to come up with a new type of Bauhaus model where like on the outer ring, you, you get to touch on all these different kind of aspects. And as you move closer and closer towards the center, which is closer and closer to graduation, you get to refine the things that you are interested in that fit with, it's like a puzzle piece within the industry as opposed to it being so linear and everybody's trying to be, come out as designers only to find out that five out of 100 people actually have a job as a dedicated designer.
1: Designer, yeah. Yeah. I think it's tough. Part of that is back to the studio-based crutch, right? But also, how do we work into the curriculum to promote those other kinds of things? I would tell you right now, like, if somebody was really interested in doing probably energy modeling or carbon modeling or any sort of thing where they could come up with ways to evaluate that and got really good at it, man, they would be a rock star in the profession. Mm Mm-hmm. But there is no, at least in undergraduate, maybe in your master's work, but there's no mechanism for that to really happen for someone at an undergraduate degree level to go, man, I really want to focus on this. Yes, I know design is important, but I would rather evaluate my whole studio's design work in some software and make them all better environmentally or sustainably or energy consumption or whatever. That doesn't really exist. There's no mechanism for them to do that. There might be one. Offhand course, that's an elective course that's not a studio that then uh, what nobody really cares about, yeah, in that sense or it doesn't have the same weight, right? And so it gets to be difficult, I think, or like construction stuff. Or there's a whole lot, like I said, there's a whole periphery of all these different roles that we do that there's not an exposure to that or even the possibility to become really proficient at that instead of becoming proficient at designing. Yeah, there's still critical thinking and problem solving stuff that can happen in those other ways.
0: Okay, so that's a nice segue into one of these other ones, which is lack of accountability. And the argument in this capacity is that the studio model doesn't always create a framework that allows you to assess a student's performance in a way that you can apply unilaterally to everybody, so it ends up making it challenging to ensure that students are meeting certain specific objective-based oh, yeah. learning requirements. It's tough.
1: it is tough. We've been doing. For the past, I don't know, four or five years, we've been going through and working on and refining this sort of assessment process for students and their work and are they meeting learning objectives. And part of that you also have to do because you have to do it for NAB accreditation. There's all this kind of stuff that wants you to do that, but it's so difficult. I don't think it's any different than the profession, right? But if you sit around with 10 people that are design-educated architects or design-educated people, there's going to be 10 different opinions about the exact same project. Mm -hmm. and what it does well and what it doesn't do well and things that got right and things that got wrong. And so I think that is really tough. And the other issue with it is things that are valued in one studio may not be valued in another studio. Just in that instance about, well, this professor cares more about this part than the other part but the other professor cared more about that part and it's difficult to, I think, have some accountability but also try to, I don't want to say level the playing field but maybe level the learning field so that you make sure that all the students are meeting and understanding the things that they're supposed to learn you can see why that would be hard to do though oh yeah Oh no, no i think you could but i think it's also it's one of those things i mean it's a criticism comes up a lot is because i mean even within a, one studio students can go well i showed this to another professor let's say for example my students and they thought it was great and then well, you give me a bad grade because you don't think it's great mm-hmm. so why are you giving me a bad grade? <laughs> And it's like well it's hard to justify those things or reconcile that all those differences that happen. And so when you start to try to do that at a larger scale. It gets much more difficult.
0: Well, as a student, I remember that happening because I think I've even written a post where it's come up and it has to do with the idea that you pin your work up. Somebody comes in and they've got five minutes to understand some project that you've spent six, eight, 12 weeks working on. It's got all these new yeah. I- and you're like, well, this guy is all about Technology and architecture, and he's gonna evaluate your project based on what his pet interest is. Mm -hmm. Or he's the sustainability guy and he's gonna look at it and go, Well, your building's facing west. This is garbage. Yeah. Right. And you're like, okay, well, I mean, that's not yes, okay, fair, but what about all these other things? He's like, nope, 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 garbage. Yeah. We all knew that. We all knew that I think I wrote, like, you are not your project because there might somebody come in and just like blow you up, and it's not a true proper evaluation of the work or effort that you put in it's just a reflection of whatever their pet interest might be yeah and that's brutal
2: yeah
1: and it's tough but it's tough to reconcile all that too into a sense of even if we try to make specific learning objectives what those should be how do we even agree on that try to get 10 architects to agree <laughs> well that what you should learn right like
0: but okay but then that gets us into the other one limited diversity in design approaches yeah and so like If you do set up something where everybody can come in and be on the same page and how they evaluate it, well, then everybody's the same and that doesn't work either. (laughs) Either. (laughs)
1: Right. Yeah, I know. Well. It's like middle ground for everything that kind of needs to happen, but then in a way that's bad, right? I mean, it's all tough. I think it's a tough system to work through and it's all really difficult to have individuality yet uniformity because really that's what you want. Yes. To come out of it, but how do you like, how can you even do those things when those are two, those are the opposites, those two words.
0: Yes. Okay. So even though we've been skipping items that we're going to include in the post on all the different, I mean, criticisms, we have six things that we wanted to go through. When we looked at concerns, there were 11 that were on 11. Yeah. And we've been skipping those and we're only halfway through. And I think that just shows what a big topic this is and how many things that are worth talking about that might end up coming up. So we're going to punt out of the show at this point so that we can actually give the other categories that we wanted to talk through enough bandwidth for us to actually have an interesting conversation. So we're going to do a part two, and that's going to cover things like the divide between practice and academia. There's a historical context to the divide between academia and the architectural profession. And we've got a couple different ways that we can talk about it. Things like evolution of architectural movements, the divergence of pedagogical approaches, the role of research. Like there's a bunch of things that we want to get into in there. And then we we have, let's talk about some of the good things. We're all just kind of shooting cannonballs over the deck of the ship here. Yeah,
1: but there is some good stuff, right? There's yeah, some there's good some
0: stuff. good stuff. Yeah. I feel like maybe we should have done like part one good stuff in this episode and part two good stuff. <laughs> Well, this is just all negative. Not, that's what
1: I think. <laughs> no, that's what I was worried about. That's what I wanted. To. Yes. Even if we say it's broken, there's still good things
0: about it. Yes. So we'll just say, look, you just gotta go straight into episode two and just know that there are some good things that we're gonna get into. But then we wanna wrap up by having a conversation about the impact of public perception. Cause I think that has to be part of it as well. So part one, done. I'm gonna say it's in the books, and we're gonna move on to I have a would you rather. And I came up with the would you rather right before we hit the record button. I have not thought it through. Normally, you know, I, I workshop these. You have any No, this either no. At, at the office? Oh, uh-oh. No. No okay. one knows this one. I told Andrew what it was. Sure. Also right before we hit record. So we've been talking. I know he hasn't come up with an answer. <laughs> I'm not sure what my maybe, answer is. Maybe. I'm struggling a little bit because they're both terrible. We got to figure out what the, like, would you rather ride unicorns into the sunset or slide down rainbows into like we they're all terrible we've got to come up with some good
2: ones (laughs)
1: some good options instead of which is the worst option yes
0: okay so as I was pondering how we would end today's episode trying to come up with another hot dog finger type question (laughs) I was surprised how many people love the hot dog finger question to be honest with you I got to wondering so what do I enjoy doing and what would I not like to quit doing? In a purely PG-rated capacity. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks, which, I don't know, probably cheating in some people's opinions, but I still get to use my imagination. I think it's better than watching TV shows for the most part. So I'm okay with that. So I wanted to build a question around what would you rather give up, this thing that you like or this thing that you like? And So here's the question. Mm -hmm. Would you rather never have access to books, any books, in any capacity, forever, or never be able to cook from scratch again. And I had to put on there from scratch. Because I'm not saying you you can't heat stuff up. Or you can't like make a sandwich. You can make a sandwich. That's just assembly. That's not cooking.
2: Okay. All right.
0: And I thought about this because during COVID, I'd say, hey, Andrew, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making chocolate chip banana bread. You had the market cornered on chocolate chip banana bread.
1: <laughs> Thousands of loaves during COVID. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I like to cook. And I cook a lot mm-hmm. of stuff from scratch myself.
1: I mean, the barbecue's got to Yes.
0: Yes. That. The only right, hobby yeah. I kind of have. I mean, I don't consider reading a book a hobby. Yeah. Maybe I should. But so cooking is it. And I've come on the show and said, look, if I thought this architecture thing wasn't going to work out, I was going to be a chef. So this is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Both these things, yeah, I enjoy a lot. Me too.
1: Me too. Quite a bit.
0: So, but you seem to think like you have an answer already. So I'm going to let you go first.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I thought I had one. and then. The more we talk about it, maybe I don't. But my answer was going to be give up cooking stuff. Mainly that's because I could probably manage to live without that. I would find some place that I like to go eat that would cook food that I would want, whatever. And I would begin to frequent that place instead of cooking for myself. But also mainly because of me, like I'm cooking for one a lot, which is not that great. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And so that sort of lends itself to be easier to give that up than books. Cause I I mean, I buy books
2: constantly, like I'm constantly buying books.
1: Yeah. I'm not reading as many as I'm buying, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, I think giving up, I mean, when I just looked at my left, there's like 40 books on the table over yeah, next to my computer. So, and I don't think I could live without the book, the access to books in any way, shape or form. I just, I don't see that okay. being possible.
0: Interesting. I, I, I didn't think that was where you were going to go with that, but I'm not surprised by it either, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah. I think this is one of those questions, though, I mean, just before while you're thinking about your answer that. Oh, I got my answer. Oh, if it was a younger person, it would probably be maybe an easier question because they don't really deal with books that much anymore anyway. But at the same time, they also don't really cook for themselves either. So I don't know. Maybe it's nope. tough if you're younger too. I was like thinking if this is my daughter's
0: question. How would she would answer be, it? Uh, so I think that I'd have to give up cooking too, to be honest with you. And part of it's because, so I read or listen to audiobook every day, every single day. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that when I go to bed, I have to turn my brain off. Yeah. This is something I actually struggle about doing. I don't have a hard time falling asleep. When I say, I'm going to sleep, I fall asleep pretty fast. But I think that's partly because I turn my brain off in order to do it. And if I can't turn my brain off. I don't fall asleep, or I sleep fitfully, or I, I have dreams about problems I'm trying to solve. I mean, it's just that part's okay because I wake up and I go, I have an answer. <laughs> you know, that part's not that bad. I figured it
1: out in my sleep. But
0: every single night I go to sleep and I put on an audiobook and I set the timer for 30 minutes and I lay down in bed and, and then I fall asleep and I fall asleep to somebody telling me something cool thing in my ear. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. I like to cook, but. I think I'd be a psychopath if I didn't sleep and if I didn't have this thing that is I've I mean this has been for years now. Yeah. I went back and I looked at my audiobooks and just this year, forty seven audiobooks.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a lot.
0: Yeah. I don't listen to radio anymore. I mean, I listen to music a lot, mm-hmm. but when I get in the car, audiobook. Audio book. Interesting. When I'm like I was doing some laundry tonight while you were coming back from school because I'm taking a trip yeah I put on headphones and I'm listening to audiobook as I'm doing laundry and folding and packing my suitcase like that's just what it is.
1: That's interesting, yeah,
0: so I love to cook though i mean i I cook a lot and I like eating the food that I make. In fact, my daughter was home from college, and you know we started this thing where all parents do this. you're like, Oh, you got all straight A's. you can we're gonna take you out to a celebration dinner. Where do you want to go? Yeah she's like, I want you to cook me dinner.' And so we never went out to eat. Like special meals were always. Were all cooked. Yeah. I made them. I cooked them. Yeah. So she came home. We went to the fair. And uh, Saturday night, I go, what do you want to do? You want to go out and have dinner? She's like, no, I want you to make dinner. And I want you to make this thing that I like. And so that's what I did. It's all from scratch. It's all ingredients. Yeah. I made a pie. (laughs) I mean, it was like a whole thing. I made a pie. I made mashed sweet potatoes i made a steak i mean we had caesar salad yeah i made garlic bread like the whole i made all of it and if i couldn't do that man that would stink
1: yeah and that kind of stuff I mean, when you start talking about it because i do on the weekends i really like to cook myself a big crazy breakfast but i like to cook it i don't know that i would want to go eat it as much as i enjoy like cooking it and yeah putting it together and then it really tastes great and so yeah thinking about having to not be able to do that does stink but it's not as bad as not having access to books, I don't think. This is really close, right? I'll be honest with you. It's really, really close.
0: If I didn't think, if I, if I didn't have to use books to shut my brain down, I would definitely give up books. Yeah.
1: Really? Interesting.
0: Yeah. Because you know what? I stopped reading architecture books years ago. I mean, I look at the pictures and I read like the paragraph around. I go, "Ooh, I don't understand. Like, I don't start page one. I go, mm, page one, read architecture book." Yeah. I haven't done that in forever. Yeah. And now, since so much of this content you can find online, honestly, I stopped buying architecture books. So most of the books I read, they're not architecture books. They have to do with science and magic and dragons. And <laughs> the
1: most of the stuff you listen to fiction?
0: And hit man yeah, I do a lot of Titan. I do a lot of autobiographies. Okay. I'm trying to avoid like the war history books, because that's like you're definitely old man if you get into the history channel kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For
0: but sure. yeah, well, you know, I started it originally cause my daughter was like, Hey, I'm reading this 18 billion page book and I'd like to talk to somebody about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was like, okay, my pattern of reading books when I actually was like reading, like picking up a paperback book is I didn't do anything else until I finished that book and people hated it. I got in trouble. I got in trouble <laughs> in fourth grade. We got assigned Willy Wonka. Uh-huh. You know, what, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah. They gave it to us in fourth grade. They handed out the books and they're like, okay, for tomorrow, read chapter one. I came in. I'm like, done. Slapped it on the counter. And they're like, that's lies. And I was like, it's all I did. You gave me the book. I read it. I read it on the bus. I got home. I read it all night. I stayed up late. I read it. I finished it. Loved it. Asked me a question. I got you. And they didn't believe it. They're like, there's no way you read this book. Yeah. I'm really tough. Favorite holiday? Favorite holiday is uh, Thanksgiving because of the cooking. Yeah, the cooking. And I do the cooking. This one's brutal, but I think I have to choose the books so I don't go bananas.
1: Yeah, I can't do the audiobooks for the reason that you're talking about, though, because when I listen to audiobooks, I can't do anything else. I have to sit there and focus on what I'm
0: listening to. Oh, I do the same thing, too. I can't work and listen to audiobooks.
1: Yeah, I can't not. I probably couldn't even do laundry, right? Because I, I want to just, I have to, like, approach it as though I'm reading. I can't sort of have it be background noise or only partially catch things, right? I want to hear, like, every single word and really focus on that. Yeah. Which is how I do when I read, too. If I'm reading, it's like I got blinders on. There's nothing else happening other than that. And, you know, the the house could be burning down around me. And I'm like, this page turned the page, you know, like I'm reading. <laughs>
0: All right. We both chose books, and we yeah. both maybe begrudgingly chose, chose books. books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 137, Is Architecture School Broken? Part 1. Special thanks to Construction Specialties. They are so focused on the importance of helping the architects achieve their creative vision that they've created a CEU Academy with multiple courses concerning facade design. These courses are each worth one AIA Learning Unit or one IDCEC CEU and HSW. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want
1: to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms. So hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a marvelous new
0: episode. While you're there, please take a few more seconds to leave us a five star, sharpen your pencils and sit out in the studio rating.
1: To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this scholarly episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.